It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Patrick Brown is a climate scientist. He has a PhD in it. He's an adjunct faculty member at Johns Hopkins University, and he recently published a paper in the prestigious Nature magazine highlighting the impact of temperature increase on the risk of forest fires. So far, so not very surprising. Except he recently wrote an explosive article in the Free Press that exposed how he and his colleagues deliberately designed their scientific papers to sound as catastrophic as possible and to focus exclusively on climate change to the exclusion of other explanatory factors. All this in order to make sure they get published in top journals like Nature, which, according to him, have a predetermined narrative that they want to emphasize. He's done the unusual thing of writing a devastating critique of his own paper. He's here to tell us more. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. So let's just dive straight in with this particular paper that you wrote about in your recent article. So it's a scientific paper about wildfires and the impact that climate change might or might not have on them. What was the, the piece that got published in Nature magazine? The scientific article is on the influence of climate change on the risk of extreme wildfire growth. And there's nothing wrong with the article by itself at face value. Um, I think it, maybe I want to zoom out and tell you kind of what my main theme is that I'm trying to get at with the piece in the free press. And that's the, there's just kind of this dominant preferred narrative on climate change impacts on society. And this, I think, is definitely represented in the highest profile research papers. And it's penetrated the zeitgeist of, of the public and especially kind of left of center public. And that's that, you know, these... It's a narrative that centers climate change impacts uh, as a motivation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so when climate change is one of many causal factors impacting an outcome, it's essentially given the center of attention in kind of a, a bleeds it leads, you know, way. I recognize that this was kind of the preferred uh, narrative for, for high profile papers that get a lot of attention. And so under pressure to publish as, a, as an academic, I just realized that it was, you know, kind of the highest return on investment as a researcher to kind of go down that route and to, and to um, kind of play into that. So that means the paper itself, you know, which is all laid out in the paper, the paper itself focuses very narrowly 
uh, on the climate change impact of wildfires. Um, but I just think that in retrospect, you know, zooming out, that's not actually the, the most useful use of a researcher's time. So it, it doesn't place climate change in, in proper context in terms of changes in, in fuel loads in the past and potentially going forward. Um, and so then it also doesn't address possible solutions. And so, again, scientifically, the paper is fine. And if it just existed by itself, that's fine. But it's it's the broader many, many papers doing this at the same time that then is, you know, kind of pushed to the public. All of these papers focusing on on a climate change impacts kind of narrowly. That's what's leaving out the full story or the full truth once it gets into kind of the public domain, public knowledge. What's unusual about your case is that you're critiquing your own article. <laughs> so it'd be quite right. common for someone to critique someone else's article, but you literally wrote this and it's now been published. It's only just come out. The first question people listening will have, I think, is did you deliberately write it in a way that you didn't think was optimal with the plan to subsequently critique it? Or was this just what you thought would get published and you're now kind of confessing that that was the process at the time? Yeah, it's more the the second one. It was more, you know, I started this research a long time ago, basically in 2019. And I started writing a paper at the end of 2021. And I submitted it in July 2022. And it was more recently, I've kind of turned my attention to what I think are biases in the, in the scientific literature and kind of an overemphasis on seeking out and highlighting negative impacts from climate change as opposed to thinking about human resilience to climate and, and practical solutions to, to impacts from climate change. So I've been thinking about that more recently. And I just realized that I was kind of presenting a, a major double standard, that I had this, this paper that was going to come out that I framed the research question in a way that I thought would get into a high impact journal and get attention and would be good for my career. And I realized that uh, I needed to critique my own work and not just uh, other papers. I want to get into the detail of that paper in a moment, but I've got to ask, was there a sudden conversion moment here? I mean, you, you obviously care about climate change enough to do a PhD in it and devote your professional life to that topic. I'm guessing you believe that climate change is real, uh, in part, or mostly man-made. I mean, what's your kind of big picture views on climate change? It's real is just beyond any doubt. You know, all of our instrumentation uh, show that the Earth is is warming and is warming consistently uh, since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, it's us. I think it's beyond any type of reasonable doubt uh, as well. And so when you hear about the 97% consensus on on climate change, that's referring to those two components. It's real and it's us. Well, hold on. I just uh, sort of ask, it's us. Does that mean it's mostly, partly, entirely man-made? I would say entirely. I would say that, wow. that the best estimate is that 100% of the warming since the Industrial Revolution is due to increasing greenhouse gas concentrations, so particularly CO2, but also uh, methane and nitrous oxide. There's just not really um, natural candidates that that uh, can account for for warming. If anything, there should have been you know slight cooling if it was if it wasn't for increasing greenhouse gas concentrations. Okay. So then the it's bad part. That's where, especially when you're talking about impacts on people, 
it's just much more complicated than I think um, what's getting out uh, into the public. And so that's, I guess, the the component where I'm kind of challenging um, the mainstream narrative a little bit. Uh, not necessarily, you know, whether it's bad, but just how bad is it when you're talking about other factors changing at the same time. So uh, when you're talking about impacts on society, you know, what is the magnitude of climate change uh, and the magnitude of that impact on society relative to, for example, just, you know, economic development. And we see historically that that just economic development has completely overwhelmed climate change in terms of its impacts on climate sensitive aspects of our society. So ability to obtain clean water and food and, um, you know, crop yields and, and death rates from famine and death rates from uh, extreme weather and death death rates from extreme temperatures, all those things are going in positive directions despite climate change. And, you know, the main variation across space today in those things is is totally determined by economics, by, uh, you know, by GDP of countries, much more than the actual climate hazard. So this reminds me a tiny bit of someone called Bjorn Lomborg, who I, we've had on this show, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who sounds a little bit similar that you, you may like or dislike that comparison, but he also seems to think that if you factor in the likely adaptations that we will do through technology in coming decades, as well as things like economic impacts, suddenly the idea that climate change is the single variable, the biggest issue, the only thing we need to worry about falls away. Yeah. And I th also think that, you know, an over-focus on highlighting negative impacts from climate change uh, just represents an opportunity cost to focus on on more practical solutions kind of you know on the ground you know whether that be uh, you know more more agricultural R&D or uh, fostering irrigation or uh, air conditioning or with when it comes to fires uh, prescribed burns and, and mechanical thinning to, to reduce fuel loads and reduce fire intensity you know, infrastructure, dike stamps, building codes. So I think that the, the idea that, oh, here's, here, we're going to highlight this, this negative impact and the solution is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Those, you know, you do need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the long term. And you do need to get, you need to get CO2 emissions down to zero to stabilize temperature. So that is, that is true. And that needs to happen in the long term, but you don't see the benefit of that uh, really till the end of the century. So like the difference between kind of a higher emission scenario and, a, and an emission scenario more in line with the, with the Paris Agreement uh, is, is very little. It's almost nothing by 2050. So if, you have, if you're looking at a problem that's kind of in the near term, you have to use another lever other than global scale emissions reduction climate policy to try to solve that problem. So I think we've now properly established your bona fides as not a kind of out there, what people might call climate denier. Uh, you're obviously someone who uh, takes this issue seriously. Maybe we call you a climate pragmatist or something like that. Let's tell the story of this paper. So you, you wrote with scientific colleagues a paper that you successfully submitted to Nature magazine investigating the, the impact of climate change on wildfires. Now, the, the, the basis, the grounding for this is what the normal narrative is. So let's just put up some headlines on the screen. You quote them in your piece. The AP 
says climate change keeps making wildfires and smoke worse. Scientists call it the new abnormal. PBS NewsHour says wildfires driven by climate change are on the rise. Spain must do more to prepare, experts say. New York Times, how climate change turned lush Hawaii into a tinderbox. And Bloomberg, Maui fires show climate change's ugly reach. So there's a real common thread there, which is climate change has led to wildfires. Climate change has led to wildfires. That message is being drummed home in those media outlets. Now tell us what your paper said. My paper just narrowly quantifies the influence of temperature change on extreme wildfire growth. And so the the you know the headline number that that most news organizations went with is the this 25% increase in the risk of extreme daily growth of wildfires in California since uh, the industrial revolution. So it's taking that temperature delta uh, that temperature change since the industrial revolution and trying to quantify how that influences the risk of more than 10,000 acres of, of growth in a, in a single day. So that is one of my critiques of the paper is that, you know, that's a scientifically valid thing to do to isolate the, the temperature signal and to quantify what that is. But it's practically not all that uh, useful because you know, the, the fuel loads have completely changed since the industrial revolution in California. So we don't actually know, you know, practically what the, what the difference is between now and, and previously, uh, in terms of the risk of extreme wildfire growth. And so I just think that it's not that in retrospect, it just wasn't a good use of my time. It was a good use of my time for my career to be doing that, um, because it, you know, led to a high profile paper and I, and I, you know, kind of designed it to, to be like that. Um, but it's, it's not that useful of information for society, in my opinion. You selected a metric to zoom in on, which is the effect of temperature on the increased risk of a 10,000 acre plus right. wildfire. And that's so specific. And I guess you chose it because you knew it would have dramatic results. And you thought that would make it more likely to be accepted in the paper. Yeah, the research question was definitely framed in a way to to make it sellable. And this is not some secret. So when you go when you go to nature and you submit your paper, uh, you submit a cover letter uh, with it. And it tells you right there on their website, uh, this is a chance for you to sell your paper. Uh, and then, you know, the, one of their main editorial reasons for rejection is a paper is not high impact enough, meaning that it's not, you know, worthy of attention or general interest uh, enough. So I don't really think what I'm saying is all that scandalous, frankly. I mean, it's kind of like everyone in the field knows that science and nature in these high impact journals want kind of, you know, dramatic uh, results. And so naturally people kind of frame their, their research questions in that direction. There's dramatic results, which I think people might understand, which is the sort of journalist infusion into a scientific journal. They also want to make headlines. But you go further than that. You say they have a preconceived narrative, which they want reinforced. So had it been a dramatic result in the other direction, they would not have accepted it. What's your evidence for that assertion? Well, it's just from being within the field. I mean, it, it's. I think it's you know, I've been, I've been reading, I've been submitting to these journals, I've been publishing in these journals, I've been reviewing for these journals. 
I'm in the field and it's just the general kind of zeitgeist of the field that to, to, you know, be a good climate impacts researcher is to highlight, uh, negative impacts from climate change. And that's kind of a good thing to do. And, you know, there's this notion that, that any type of, you know, investigation of resilience or anything that kind of overcomes the impact of climate change is, uh, that's not so great because that, uh, is going to kind of take away from the motivation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which is ostensibly all of our, all of our goals. I mean, it's a very serious allegation. I guess it, intuitively it strikes me as entirely plausible, probably likely, but Still, it's a hugely important allegation because what you're saying is actually the whole elite scientific structure around this topic is tilted in one direction and that findings that support a particular narrative are going to get surfaced and talked about in the media whilst other kinds of scientific investigations are not. So it will certainly provide fuel to people who are more sceptical every time they read yet another headline saying climate disaster imminent, this is the only thing we can do is net zero by five years time, they will now feel more skeptical than they used to be. I think that's kind of an erroneous notion of science that there is some center unbiased um, place. And I'm so that's that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there is a there's an unbiased science and nature is away from that and we need to pull it to to that exact center. I actually don't think that center exists. You know, I think that that their preferred narrative is their preferred narrative, and I have a different preferred narrative. And I essentially wrote an opinion piece arguing for that preferred narrative that's kind of much more practical and, and more optimistic. And I I just don't I don't think that it's possible to not have a preferred narrative. This is this is people, and people have biases and preferences and, and ways that they look at the world. And the the types of papers that I'm talking about are not uh they're not really like hypothesis test papers that you can that is like the efficacy of a drug where you can uh do you know a double blind control uh trial type of thing there's a ton of creativity in these papers and there's you know just a lot of researcher degrees of freedom a lot of ways to to kind of frame your question and a lot of freedom to you know what questions to ask and what answers so those questions you find appealing and then what to put in the abstract and then eventually like what gets in the university press release and all that stuff. And so, of course, that's influenced by culture. And there's kind of a, a you know, social construction to to a lot of this. And so I don't think sounds that that sounds a little bit like journalism. Right. Exactly. Your, your message, I suppose, is not. Be skeptical in one direction. We need to get back to some perfect neutral science, what you're saying is be skeptical in all directions because everyone has some sort of narrative and you need to take that into account. Yeah, certainly. And I do think that that journalists uh, that cover climate uh, should be thinking about that when they cover it. And when they interview researchers on their paper, they should be trying to act like journalists as a filter between the researcher and the public rather than as a, you know, as a PR or as a as a megaphone uh, to the researcher. Because I think that we give too much kind of deference to to scientists uh, saying, 
oh, you are kind of objective arbiter of truth and I cannot question you. And so I will tell the public what you have said. And I just, we're people, you know, we're, this is not, this is not, um, we're not objective arbiters of truth. Well, I think a lot of people feel a lot more like what you've just said, especially since the last few years, the experience during the COVID pandemic certainly made people a lot more skeptical of the pronouncements from on high from the scientific establishment. Let me throw the counter at you, though. The editor-in-chief of Nature, since you published your article, has come back and said that what you're saying is nonsense, that all you're doing is confessing that your paper is substandard and therefore should never have been submitted, that there are other articles she can point to that show precisely the narrative you say is not properly highlighted, and generally that she denies it. What, what do you say to her? Well, so if people want to, you know, look at look at these high profile papers, uh, so Altmetric catalogs these. So that's, you know, the papers that could get the most attention on, on climate change or well, on, on any topic. But uh, Carbon Brief uh, each year has uh, the top 10 papers in terms of Altmetric uh, that are related to climate change. And you can go through those and uh, see exactly, you know, what I'm talking about. So the, the vast majority of those papers come from these high-impact journals, uh, and they follow this, this formula that I lay out that's, you know, you highlight a negative impact from climate change, and then the title of the paper is kind of a headline title. It's not, you know, the quantification of, of a bunch of things. It's uh, climate change causes some, some bad thing. And that is just, it's very common. Um, and so, yeah, there are exceptions uh, to that. But it's, I'll admit I'm wrong if you show me that there's just as many papers on climate and society that that place climate change impacts in, in proper contexts and are kind of, you know, muddled about the story and, you know, don't, don't have this kind of headline and this, 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 you know, abstract I'm talking about versus the ones that, that I'm talking about that isolate and highlight and kind of sell a climate impact. Do you think the problem could be a kind of structural one, which is that if you're in the business of climate change study, you are likely to be a true believer from the outset and, and somewhat of a campaigner even. You know, you're, you're probably going to have signed up to all of the priors before you even complete your PhD. Similarly, if you're a climate change correspondent at a newspaper or a media outlet, you're probably a true believer as well. So in fact, it's, it's a whole world that is pretty much devoid of skeptics. Yeah, I, I think that that is a, a major a major issue. There's a you know all these selection effects essentially, but yeah, people that that research climate change impacts self-selected into that, and people that are on climate desks uh, self-selected into that, uh, and uh, obviously that's gonna that's gonna color kind of the whole the whole research line um, from from the beginning to the to the communication to the public, and so you need you know kind of. You need um, synthesis. You need kind of some breaks, some structure on that. I'm not sure that the best way to go is to have this kind of direct to the public uh, communication from these high impact journals to the climate desk to uh, the public, because I, I do think that it's that it's skewing, um, you know, kind of what the underlying raw data uh, should. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This has become very big politics, particularly recently. Uh, here in the UK, there's a growing debate around the net zero targets. People are beginning to feel the economic consequences of them. The net zero movement is also happening in concert with a whole load of others. Uh, motorists in particular are now getting more and more angry that they perceive themselves to be sort of over the top targeted. We've got the whole of London moving to 20 miles per hour limit, which is a sort of very painfully slow speed to drive down a big freeway. There are high charges, expensive charges for cars that are deemed not, you know, to meet the latest standards and so on. It's become very political. What's the counter argument? You mentioned earlier in this interview that you thought getting to zero carbon emissions is the only way out of this. So does that mean you're a supporter of net zero? Yes, I'm a supporter of net zero in the long term. I think it's been oversold the idea that you need to be, you know, net zero by 2050, something like that. So, you know, the, the Paris Agreement goals of 1.5 and, and 2 degrees uh, Celsius were, you know, really came out of diplomatic uh, negotiations at the UN. They're not something that sprung from the underlying science. Uh, scientific reports were solicited after uh, they were put into place to kind of uh, justify them or to justify you know, 1.5 versus two. But I would just say that it's uh, it's it's completely up for debate in democracy. So it's not a situation where it's the science says, you know, capital S science says that uh, we need to stay below uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius, something like that, that people can make that argument. But I think people can also make the the other argument that the that the 
energy policy required for that and agriculture policy required for that is too restrictive on human well-being um, to justify. I think what pisses people off as well is that Western countries, UK being a good example, have actually made a lot of progress on, for example, shifting to different types of energy, which when you compare to China and India and the, the major polluters, which are actually causing most of the problem, is a kind of insignificant portion. So there's a sense of why should we kill ourselves, kill our economies, bend over backwards, whilst it's not going to make enough difference anyway, and the rest of the world isn't doing the same. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge uh, geopolitical uh, problem. It's the ultimate kind of collective action uh, problem. Uh, and so it's going to be a fascinating uh, century uh, to, uh, to see how it, it shakes out. I mean, it obviously makes things a lot easier the more that you can reduce the cost, the something called the green premium, the difference between fossil fuels and alternatives. And so I think that will be, you know, partially wind and solar and batteries, um, but hopefully there's, uh, you know, there's continued uh, progress on, on nuclear and small modular reactors and enhanced geothermal. And we end up with energy systems that don't emit CO2 and it didn't require, uh, you know, huge reductions in energy consumption, which, which dominate um, climate terms of our resilience to which dominate climate change in terms of our resilience to, to climate. So we, if we want to, you know, maximize our resilience to the climate, we need to have high energy uh, societies. I mean, that's what we see historically and across space today. Let's leave on a positive note here. What are the things we should be focusing on, should be investing in, which aren't just reducing emissions through government decree? that could actually make a big difference in minimizing the impact of climate change in the shorter term by 2050 or 2060? What are the things we're missing? I guess I'll start with just, um, you know, the fire issue that was with, with my paper that, you know, what we're seeing in, in our modeling now is that uh, reducing fuel loads in forests has a huge impact on uh, wildfire danger. What and does so that I, mean? I, sorry. So we, in the early uh, 20th century in the United States, we had this policy of putting out all natural fires uh, as soon as they as soon as they were ignited. And so then, what that means is that instead of instead of a forest that naturally burns every 10 years or so and, and clears out all of the vegetation uh, that's that's uh, you know underneath the uh, mature trees. Uh, you have a situation now where a century's worth of vegetation has has built up, and so rather than than high frequency, low intensity fires, now when we have a, a fire, it's extremely extremely intense because there's so much extra fuel. And so going in and doing what are called what's called mechanical thinning, it's taking out uh, a lot of that vegetation or prescribed burns, so intentionally burning uh, those areas. Uh, reduces the fuel load. So then when you do have a, a an accidental fire, it's much less intense. It's much easier to fight. Uh, and so in the United States, we, we have a bunch of uh, uh, funding to to do that. And we're, and we're uh, our goal is to treat 50 million acres of, of Western U.S. forests. Um, but it's been hard. It's hard politically and 
Um, I think if there was kind of more emphasis on it from from high impact science, that it would be easier uh, to get done uh, politically. So that's okay. That's that one solid solid example there. Well, are there others that we should particularly in Europe maybe that we should be thinking about? Yeah. So how about you know more in, you know instead of necessarily just uh, subsidizing, for example, electric vehicles, or maybe not instead, but in addition to. Uh, you could, you know, do more subsidies of air conditioning, you know, widespread uh, adoption of air conditioning. You could, uh, in other words, you know, to, to help people cope with forthcoming heat waves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if we're worried about uh, food, then, you know, more agricultural research and development, expansion of irrigation, fertilizer has been one of the main ways that you know we've been able to feed humanity over the past uh, century i mean fertilizer is an interesting one because in fact the opposites happened as far as i understand i know that some of the impetus behind the protests in holland for example has precisely been that they've been not allowed to use nitrate fertilizers that they've been using for decades on the basis of green reasons so that's kind of gone the other way we should be trying to maximize for human well-being and to the extent that that fertilizer helps increase yields and reduces food prices, uh, th that it's a good thing. So, you know, and then there's, there's the infrastructure, obviously, you know, dikes and dams and, and, uh, emphasis on, on building codes and, um, just, you know, just general economic development has historically been what's, what's increased, uh, resilience to climate. And so anything that restricts that I think is is uh, problematic. Let's say that we do all the things you have suggested. I think it's maybe it's unlikely, but let's just say we we do. If we're completely unsuccessful at reaching our net zero goals, but are pretty successful in adapting, investing in technologies, doing some of these mitigation ideas that you've mentioned, how bad will it be? Let's say come 2100, Will we be in the disaster zone that is talked about, or do you think humanity would will still be fine? From looking at the data and looking at just just zooming out and looking at the past fifty years, we've seen one degree Celsius of warming, and every single aspect of society that's sensitive to climate uh, has been getting better despite that one degree Celsius of warming. Such as just to explain that. So just, you know, like crop yields, uh, death rates from malnutrition, uh, the, the share of the population with, with access to safe drinking water. Uh, even, you know, you look at, there's been sea level rise, but if you look at li livable land area in coastal cities, that's increased because of land reclamation projects. Uh, you look at like climate related diseases like malaria and, and diarrheal disease, those have gone down. Just look at, you know, the fraction of people in, extreme poverty, deaths from extreme temperatures, deaths from extreme heat, all those things have gone in positive and good directions, despite climate change, despite the one degree Celsius of warming over the past 50 years. And so over the next 50 years, um, under kind of a, so RCP 4.5, under a, a higher emission scenario relative to what commitments are and relative to what the International Energy Agency says, that would under that scenario, we would expect another about one to one point two five degrees Celsius over the next fifty years, uh, and I don't see any reason why we would expect these trends to reverse. And 
you, like I said, you do need to get emissions down to zero in the long term to stabilize temperature. But I think that, you know, an alternative framing could, could be, you know, that in the long term, in this century, we will eventually reach, you know, net zero emissions and stabilized temperature at around, say, 2.5 to 3 degrees Celsius of warming. And we should just be honest about what, not make it so easy on ourselves that it's, that we're, that we're choosing between uh, extinction of the human race uh, or, you know, drastic action. It's, it's much more on the spectrum of what are you willing um, to sacrifice versus uh it's a risk reward cost benefit analysis patrick brown thank you so much for your time today yeah thank you thank you for having me thanks to patrick brown an unusual profile a climate scientist a truly believing climate scientist who distrusts the scientific press hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. and thinks that adaptation, technology, and the economy will likely mitigate the worst effects of climate change over the next century, whether we hit our targets or not. We did invite the editor-in-chief of Nature magazine, I should say. Unfortunately, she didn't want to appear. Something tells me that Patrick is not going to be exceedingly popular among his climate change peer group, so thanks to him for speaking out. Thanks also to you for joining. This was Unheard.